I have a friend in the Chamber of Commerce. He's a great guy, uh, former executive, generous personality. And at an event a couple of years ago, we were all sitting around the table and somebody's sister had died from cancer. And so we were kind of talking about death and some of us were getting a little older. And so I looked at it as an opportunity. I just asked an open-ended question. I said, so what do you guys think? There were about 10 of us at the table. Is this life all there is? Is there something after this? If, if that's how it works out, like how do you know? How does it work? What's your take on life and afterlife? And, and he went first. And he was honest without realizing that he was in the South, and in the South, there's a correct answer to that question, <laughs> which involves Jesus, okay? So, so he just blurted it out, and he said, well, you know, you live, you're born, you live, you die, and that's it. You know, don't cry, don't cry about it, just live your life. And I could see the look in a few other people's faces, the look of, oh, you're going to hell, um, you know, <laughs> kind, of a, kind of a look. And... Uh, and it's funny, after, after that, we've had a number of lunches and conversations, and uh, about a month ago, he said to me, you know, Max, I, you know, I figured it out. I just, I don't need God. I just don't need him in my life. I'm, I'm fine. I, I'm, I'm fine. And he exemplifies a trend, I think, in the United States and in America. Um, we, we have relative prosperity. Um, we're not afraid of the Canadians coming down and raiding our villages and taking our women, right? <laughs> um, and we have good medical care, uh, and we have law and order, and so it's easy to live a life without God. It's easy to think you don't even need God. My own beloved Star Trek uh, has this, okay? Um, here they are, dun, 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 Star Trek The Next Generation. In the future, in the Federation, in this storyline... There's no God. There's no religion. They don't need God or religion. They had an almost nuclear war, and they kind of figured out, hey, let's just treat each other well. They don't need money. There's no money in the Federation. There's no poor people. Everyone you meet is awesome. They, they graduated at the top of their class at Starfleet Academy. Um, the Federation villains that come up in Star Trek from time to time are nowhere near Darth Vader. Like, they just lack, they're wooden, they're one-sided because they're really good guys that are just trying to do the right thing, but they kind of mess up. Um, and that's the Federation. As much as I love Star Trek, now, this has a word. It's called secular humanism. Secular humanism is the belief that we're better, we don't need God or religion for morality or for self-fulfillment. Now, as much as I love Star Trek, I don't think that's going to be our future because uh, I think our future is going to be more like Battlestar Galactica than Star Trek. And Battlestar Galactica, for those of you that aren't geeks or nerds, um, that's where the machines that we humans make come and nuke, our, nuke us <laughs> and take over. Um, Terminator is another expression of that, okay? So, uh, and the reason I think that it, it's going to play out that way is because I don't think God, the concept of God is the problem or that organized religion is the problem. I think the problem's in here. I think we're the problem. Um, and I looked to uh, the, the Council for Secular Humanists got together in 2010. Uh, they met in Los Angeles, and uh, they were having a robust debate, okay? And the debate was uh, there was one group of people in one camp that said, you know what? People of faith, Christians, as crazy as they are, you know, and as stupid as they are, like, let's just leave them alone and on the rare occasion they actually come up with a halfway decent idea i mean miraculous right 
we'll partner with them and we'll kind of work together. But otherwise, just live and let live, you know, let them be. The other camp at this meeting was, are you kidding me? We need to go after these people of faith. They're, they're what's ruining the world. We got to get rid of these people. We got to openly antagonize them. And so they were divided into these two camps of thought. Now, the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, they are reported on this. Things got so raucous at the meeting, it almost came in, uh, to a fist fight, right? Um, and, and so reason didn't help these people get along any more than Jesus helped my Baptist friends get along in all those Baptist meetings that I went to growing up as a kid. Because again, the problem's in here. It's not something external. Um, so how is it, though, that in 2017, how is it that reasonable people think that we can somehow improve life on planet Earth if we could just get rid of the concept of God or religion? Well, I think to understand how we got there a little bit, I need to do some history. Some of you are like, no, not on a Sunday. It's going to be brief. In the 1500s and 1600s, there was this thing called the Scientific Revolution and the Enlightenment. And as a result of that, we discovered some things about the universe. And they had a big aha moment. They were like, it's not the will of God holding up everything together. It's gravity. And then they came up with some other things. And, and they were like, oh, my goodness. All we need, all we need is math and the scientific method. And we'll unlock all the mysteries of the universe. We can figure out the origins of life. We don't even need God. And so as a result of this development... Um, there was a, the, the concept of God kind of morphed into something called deism. A lot of people became deists. Deism says, well, okay, the universe did ju just, didn't just happen, so there was this God or God-like entity or thing or something, and it made the world. He made the world, but, you know, he doesn't have anything to do with the world anymore. He's off, you know, in the Florida Keys, retired, who knows what, Right? And, but we don't need God anyway because, you know, the universe runs on laws and principles and we can figure out these laws and principles and, and we can get through life without him. And so the net result of this is that God has no bearing in your life anyway. This is a particular kind of God filter. It really is. Now, Sky Jeffany, I may be saying his name wrong, whose book With is the book I'm using as the basis for this teaching series. All of the major ideas, even the pictures, are from him. He calls this particular concept life over God. So last week was life under God. See how crushing that is? Life over God. Again, we're Christians here, so we're going to conceive of God as a triangle. You know why we do it? Feeling kind of pointy today, God, aren't we? Yes, I am, okay? Um, that's the... Uh, that means theos, that's God, okay? So, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, many patria, filius, spiritus, sancti, get it? Okay, so, all right, so here's, here's our guy. Only now, look at him. This is life over God. We don't need God in the picture. We got things figured out. We got the world by the tail. We've got principles. We've got math. We've got science. We've got everything we need. We don't, we don't need this religion stuff to mess things up. And so Sky Jethany calls this life over God. And that's kind of a way to conceive of it. He's on top of the world. In this case, on top of God. Now, last week, last week, if you'll remember, 
we talked about life under God, and that's the whole, well, I got to do the right things. I got to obey all the commandments. And if I do that, God will bless me. If I don't do it, God will zap me. Really, what we were doing in doing that is we were trying to control God. Hey, God, I went to church every week this year. I read my Bible every day. I witnessed every day. I did all the right things. And God kind of has to go, ah, you got me there. Okay, prepare to be blessed. <laughs> right? It's a way to control God. Now, people with the life over God filter, look at that, and they go, that is totally dumb. You don't even need God. You can control life just through the laws and principles of the universe. You don't need some God magical hocus pocus thing in there. You got the world by the tail. And so they just take God completely out of the picture and set him off to the side. But again, at the same, at, when you get to the root of it, it's an attempt to control life. Now, what may surprise you is that there are a lot of Christians and church-going Americans that have this particular God filter. You're like, no. I'm like, yeah. There's a pastor in Oklahoma that calls it Christian atheism. Uh, it's a thing, right? Um, Sky, again, puts it this way. He says, rather than a vehicle for knowing God and fostering our communion with him, we search the scriptures for applicable principles that we may employ to control our world and life. You've been in some churches, right? Want to have a successful marriage? Do these five things. Want to raise godly children who never stray when they become old? Practice these five principles at home and you'll raise godly children. Want to build wealth and have financial security? Follow these seven paths, right? There's always principles and things that will... And at the end of the day, what's really going on is we're trusting the principles for the outcome rather than trusting God for the outcome. And apparently that bothers God. Okay, so with this particular approach, with this particular approach, there's an entire industry marketed to pastors like me based on this approach. Look at all effective, effective principles it's everywhere. In my 30s, I went to their conferences. I read their books. I took notes, and I was like, I want to be effective. I want to be successful. And so do these five things. Cast a compelling vision. Embody servant leadership. Cultivate a culture of generosity. And I could go down a list, and you'll grow a successful, effective church. And what no one bothered to tell me going to these conferences is that I also needed explosive population growth and an influx of wealth because none of those churches were built in the ghetto with a declining population, <laughs> right? Okay, so just as you can grow a big and successful church without God, you can live your life without God if you want, and God will accommodate you in your attempt to live life that way. You don't need God, so what is life over God? You don't need God. You just need the right principles. Leverage and apply the right principles. Win at life. I want to suggest to you today that there's a better option than that, of course. <laughs> now, you might think that people in the Bible have it easier than us. I mean, after all, that's when all the big stuff happened. The parting of the Red Sea, rising from the dead, right? They're, they had a front row seat to all this. They wouldn't rely on techniques and principles the way we would so many hundreds of years later. Hmm, well, let's take a look, shall we? We're going to be in Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. And we're going to look at a, at a case with Moses, and we're going to look at a case with the disciples. 
just so that you know, it's in both testaments, okay? Numbers chapter 20. In Numbers chapter 20, um, the Israelites have come back to Kadesh, which is the exact spot 40 years earlier they had been when the 10 spies came back and eight of them were like, we're all going to die. And everybody was like, oh my gosh, they're right. We're all going to die. And God got a grumpy and was like, oh, okay. So I can deliver you from Egypt, but I can't do the whole promised land thing. You're going to take the long cut. You want to do this the hard way. Okay, back in the desert you go. And so they wander around for 40 years taking the long cut. And so now they've arrived back in that same spot. And let's look at what happens in Numbers chapter 20. In the first month of the year, the whole community of Israel arrived in the wilderness of Zin and camped at Kadesh. While they were there, Miriam died and was buried. So Moses' own family is now affected by the very thing that happened 40 years earlier, where God said, you know what? None of you guys is going to see the promised land. You didn't trust me. You didn't have faith. You're going to wander. You're going to die off wandering out. And now it's touched Moses' own family. His older sister, the one who followed the basket, has died. And so something more uh, important happens, and that's verses 2 and following. There was no water for the people to drink at that place. So they rebelled against Moses and Aaron. The people blamed Moses and said, If only we had died in the Lord's presence with our brothers. Why have you brought the congregation of the Lord's people into this wilderness to die along with our livestock? Why did you make us leave Egypt and bring us here to this terrible place? This land has no grain, no figs, no grapes, no pomegranates, and no water to drink. You notice something about this passage? Now, unlike the previous complaining that they did, this is legit. There's nothing to drink. There's no water. That's no bueno. Why have you, Moses and Aaron, brought us here? Is, wait a minute. Is that who brought them out of Egypt? Moses and Aaron? Josh is shaking his head. No. <laughs> I'm going to go with God for 500, Alex, okay? God brought them out of Egypt. And why did you make us leave Egypt and bring us here? So, They've put some big mantle on Moses and Aaron. And the contrast couldn't be more stark. This land has no grain, no figs, no grapes. In other words, you brought us to this awful place, not like the place that's flowing with milk and honey, that has vineyards, that's green. That, um, so let's look at what happens, and that's verses 6 and following. Moses and Aaron turned away from the people and went to the entrance of the tabernacle where they fell face down on the ground. Then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared to them, and the Lord said to Moses, You and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire community. And as the people watch, speak to the rock over there, and it will pour out its water. You will provide enough water for the rock from the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. Now, Moses and Aaron do what they've done countless times. They enter the tabernacle, they fall down on their face, and they're like, hey, boss, what do you want us to do? They're grumbling again, and God speaks. Now, the staff that Moses had, this is the staff that he threw down and became a snake in front of Pharaoh and his magi magicians. This is the staff that he used to call down the plagues in Egypt. This is the staff that he struck the Nile with and it turned to blood. This is the staff that he used and raised and the sea parted and then it drowned all the Egyptians. This is a wonkin' staff. 
What does God want him to do? God wants him to, what? I've highlighted it for you. I'm, I'm helping you out. Speak to the rock. Oh, okay. Go, go to the rock. Speak to the rock. Got it. So let's see what Moses does. Verses 9 and following. So Moses did as he was told. He took the staff from the place where it was kept before the Lord. Then he and Aaron summoned the people to come and gather at the rock. Listen, you rebels, he shouted. Must we bring you water from this rock? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with the staff, and water gushed out. So the entire community and their livestock drank to their fill. All right, you seem like smart people. Did Moses do exactly as he was commanded? <laughs> I'm seeing a lot of heads shake no, but you're afraid to blurt it out. Let me ask it again. Did Moses do exactly as he was commanded? No, no he didn't. He didn't. Why not? Moses knows the power of the staff. He knows the power of the staff. He's got it figured out. There's a key principle. Use the staff, boom, big stuff happens. If Moses were writing a book to pastors today, this is what he would author. Three effective principles of extracting water from rocks. With a forward by Aaron, maker of golden calves. Okay? This is, this is what Moses would write. And, and we pastors would buy this book in droves because we would want water to gush out of rocks too. I want water to gush out of rocks. Must we bring you water from this rock? Who was going to bring the water from the rock again? God. Oh, okay. Are you seeing where this is going now? And lest you think that this was just Moses, there's this uh, encounter with the disciples. Jesus had been up on the mountain of, you know, where, where the Lord appears and Moses and Elijah appear, and they're like, whoa! They come down from the mountain and there's a commotion going on. And this guy had a, a kid who uh, probably was demon-possessed, but he has seizures, okay? And he, he brings his kid to the disciples, and, like, and the disciples couldn't heal the man. These are the disciples who had been sent out in pairs and had been told to announce the arrival of the kingdom of God and who could heal and cast out demons, they had been trained in how to do this, and they had gone from city to city doing it. And I almost wonder if what played out was this. Jesus and Peter and John are up on the mountain. The guy brings the, the kid, and they're like, oh, hey, we got another seizure. Hey, Andrew, you want this? Oh, no, Judas, do you want this? No, 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 I got this. All right, everybody stand back. All right, you ready? The power of Christ compels you. I don't know what phrase they used, right? But they do whatever it is that they've done in all these other times, only this time... It doesn't work. This time it doesn't work. And notice Jesus is mad. Look at what uh, Jesus rebuked the demon. Uh, what does he say to them? You faithless and corrupt people. Jesus has been out of shape on this. How must I put up with you? And what's the issue? You don't have faith. You're not trusting God to do this thing, you're trusting the techniques and principles and things that you can trust and that you can control. I always wondered about this time with Moses, why God's punishment seemed so stark. 
and I want to read this, and I want to talk about it a little bit. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because, and here it is again, you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you'll not lead them into the land I'm giving them. This place was known as the waters of Meribah, which means arguing, because the people of Israel argued with the Lord, and there he demonstrated his holiness among them. I always wondered why God punished Moses for like, okay, you didn't speak to the rock, you struck it. Water still came out, like everybody walked away happy. What's the big hairy deal, God? Apparently with God, he, he really wants you to trust him and not techniques or principles. Um, Moses later pleads with God to, to not be punished. Aaron doesn't say a word. So for what we have in scripture, it would seem Aaron was like, yeah, we blew that one. We blew that one. Got it. Not going into the promised land. So what did Moses do wrong? Well, one, he, he disobeyed, right? What was he told to do? Speak to the rock. I read a bunch of Jewish rabbis about this passage. Do you know what they all said? They all said, uh, in Moses speaking to the rock, it would be clear to all the Israelites who were thinking that Moses and Aaron had magical powers that it was God who was bringing forth the, the water, not Moses. And in striking the rock, it would be yet another instance of where Moses saves the day. And so the rabbis were like, boom, God knew exactly what he wanted to have happen in that moment. Um, and the other thing with God is you'll find that he doesn't like doing the same thing the same way. Like he's constantly, you read in the scriptures, he'll do one thing one way with one judge, and then he'll do it an entirely different another way with a different judge. Uh, healing, sometimes, what's mud? And then another time, you know, you, it's, it's always different. And God's changing things up again. He, it's like he wants you to trust him and not the formula. So Moses disobeyed. And then he failed to model obedience. The leaders were supposed to model obedience, and he's not modeling that obedience. And God calls him on it right there. You did not trust me. You lacked faith. And so this place gets known as Meribah, which if we were translating it, we would just call it Quarrelsville. Quarrelsville. They quarreled with Moses. They quarreled with God. And Moses and Aaron exemplified for a moment what living life over God looks like. Strike the, wa uh, strike the rock, get water. Again, God is not so easily controlled, gang. So let me ask some questions. In, in light of this, in light of this kind of God filter that people can have, in light of what we see in the life of Moses and the disciples, is there an area of your life in which you rarely or never include God? What is the Bible to you? Like, what role does it play in your life? There's another way to ask this. In what ways have you reduced God to a watchmaker? I got this, God. So, uh, what can you and I do in light of this, right? I, and I got to tell you, this particular series has challenged me like no tomorrow about application. I normally really, uh, you know, I drive to application, but, right? The very first thing, if you're in ministry here or anywhere, pray, pray. Pray. 
Jesus says it this way in John 15. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, remain in me. Apart from me, you can do, apart from me, you can do, old people, you know this, nothing. Sometimes I hate Jesus. <laughs> nothing? Are you kidding me? Yes, nothing. It's the weirdest thing. I, so what I do here on Sundays, I try and make one point. I drive to application. I try to engage and, and take us somewhere. I do the same thing when I speak at the chamber or at Asbury University. Sundays are different. Sundays wear the tar out of me. It's because I believe there's a spiritual dimension to it. There's an unseen part to it. Um, and besides, I don't have the power to convince you of anything. I don't, have the I don't have the power in my own to grow an amazing God thing that impacts the community of Nicholasville. Um, I'm the unlikeliest of church planners. You know, if there's a profile of guys and gals that should start churches, I would flunk that exam. I just, you know, I don't have the right skill set. And yet... God told me to do something, so I just have to go, yes, sir, <laughs> okay? Pray. See, this, what I've discovered is I can't, but God can. I need God. Even when I don't think I need God, I need God. <laughs> I'm just confused in that moment. So, like, as a parent, it would have been easy for Jenny and me in the early days, and, and we read all kinds. When I had my first kid, I read, like, seven, eight books on parenting, I was filled with parenting principles. If you've been around at Generations any length of time, you know that I don't give parenting principles. <laughs> I don't. Because the principles aren't going to save my kids. Only God can do that. I need God. I need God. I don't need principles. Uh, another thing that you and I can do is to put yourself in a position where you have to depend on God. There, there were months back in the day when uh, I'd write my God checks, and I wasn't sure if generations would be able to cut my paycheck. Um, that's depending on God. I remember when I was an executive pastor, I never worried at the end of the month what I get my paychecks, right? <laughs> it was there. My trust was in the financial stability of that congregation. It wasn't in God. I'm just telling you how God's grown me. Maybe he'll grow you differently, but put yourself in a place uh, another way Jenny and I did that is we stepped up and we volunteered with middle schoolers in like 1994 and we were totally clueless and scared and middle schoolers were scary. Sorry, you're still a little scary. Woo! <laughs> okay. Um, volunteering in a, in, a, in a role where you don't feel like you can knock it out of the park. Again, put yourself in a position where you have to depend on God. And lastly, again, I'm going to suggest this every week. Read one of the Gospels. You want to know who God is? You want to know what he's like? Look at Jesus. Jesus shows us. When Jesus is doing something, God is doing something. When Jesus is saying something, God is saying something. And it shows us what God is like. Again, this filter, you don't need God. You just need the right principles. God will let you live this way. God will let you live this way. But I don't want you to live this way. Pastors, pastors in America are quitting the ministry at a huge clip these days. I don't know if you know this, but uh, the number of pastors who leave the ministry, I was at an event, a friend's birthday party Friday night by myself, and I met a couple. They had come and visited like six weeks ago. They're church refugees. Their church collapsed in on itself, da-da-da-da. And, and I got the, well, we were in ministry, but da-da-da-da. And 
it, it'll eat you. And one of the reasons it'll eat you, this is what Sky Jethany says, counselors studying the trend found that many pastors could no longer withstand the desperate need to validate their pastoral leadership by growing their church's attendance. The, one of the freest days I've had at Generations Community Church was about five years ago when I told them I don't want to see the attendance counts anymore. All the people at the Chamber of Commerce ask me, how big is Generations? And I can tell them, I can tell you when it's full or empty, but I can't tell you a number because I know what I did in my own person with those numbers. I took that number as an indicator of whether or not I was successful. That's the stupidest test in the world. It's the stupidest test in the world, and yet we're all driven to it. You're driven to it in your life, just like I am. Well, their house is bigger. Well, he's now the vice president. Well, she, how did she get the department and I didn't? And there's, you know, okay, my validation is in Christ. You know, if Peter and Paul were judged by the standards that we have in place today, can you imagine? Hey, Paul, really? Half the churches you planted died. The ones that stuck, you know, they're fighting with each other, rampant with sexual immorality. I mean, come on, if you were really working it, you could have had a church of 5,000 with several campuses. Buddy, what's your problem, Paul? And yet, he wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. Here's why it's probably most important for you not to have this God filter. If this is your God filter you're going to miss out on the power of God. You're going to miss out on the power of God, which doesn't come through our strength and talent. It comes in our weakness. It comes in our dependency. My in-laws started a church in their living room, God knows how many years ago, 30-some years ago. It was them and one other couple. It's called the Williamsburg Community Chapel. And in the 1980s, they were about the size we are now, right? And uh, they didn't have a building. They didn't have a building for like 15 years. They met in a Catholic school. Um, and, and they just prayed. They prayed, God, give us land. Give us land. Give us land. And then some old codger decides to give them 15 acres out of nowhere. It's 15 acres way out in the boonies in nowhere, Williamsburg, Virginia. And they're like... We've got land. Now we just have to save and raise money and build something on it. And that took them a number of years to do that. Do you know today they have denominational leaders and church planners come to them and ask, who did your demographic studies to know to locate there? How did, what are the principles that you use to figure out? Because you know what's there now? The new high school, all this development, da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> and do you know what their answer is? Well, we prayed, and this is the land God gave us, so we figured we'd build on it. (laughs) You can live life over God, and God will let you live that life, but you'll miss out on the power of God.